All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 7 is where we pick up this evening in our study through the book of Ecclesiastes together. Again, remember Solomon is basically on his pursuit to find meaning and purpose in this life under the sun and particularly recognizing that apart from God that that is absolutely impossible no matter what we indulge in, no matter what we pursue, no matter what we acquire, no matter what experiences we would give ourselves to, that everything is empty and meaningless, and he just said vanity upon vanity, uh, if we do not have an experience with God in our lives. And as he's been discussing this kind of pursuit of meaning and trying to find purpose on the earth, Remember the last thing he said in our time together last time in chapter 6, verse 12, he posed kind of this question, which I think really ties together. Again, remember, no chapter verse breaks in the original copies of the Word of God. Uh, We have now chapter and verse in our Bibles, uh, but... You know, I say this delicately, but honestly, and it's important to realize sometimes uh, that part of your Bible is not necessarily inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the chapter and verse breaks and references are something that we have inserted to help ourselves to kind of a little bit more quickly locate and reference different areas in the Word of God. Again, remember the original scripture when it was written wasn't done by printing press and nice, you know, binded Bibles like this. They were scrolls, large scrolls, sometimes many scrolls, you know, many scrolls to compose something like the book of Isaiah, this, you know, large prophetic book. But imagine if you just had scrolls upon scrolls of the book of Isaiah with no chapter verse references. And I were to say to you, turn to chapter 43 in Isaiah. Or if I couldn't say that, if I just said to you, turn to this particular spot in the book of Isaiah. And if you weren't real familiar with the book of Isaiah, you'd spend the entire Bible study just trying to find out the reference of the verse and section that I'm at. If I just started, for example, you know, referencing verses from Isaiah 53, and if you didn't know exactly where that was to open all your scrolls, it'd take a little while. Now, that being said, I think that many times the chapter verse references in the Bible are very helpful because they do kind of categorize maybe certain sections, and they're very helpful to be able to do what we just did tonight, turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. For some of us, it was a challenge, remember, just learning where the books of the Bible were. Uh, And if that's still you, that's what God put the table of contents in the front for as well. Another very kind thing that God gave a human idea about to put a table of contents in there. Now, that being said, I think it's important to remember, sometimes in our human thinking, we read to the end of the chapter and we think, end of a thought, new chapter. And that's not always the case, because there are times where I think maybe the chapter verse references, and again, it's just an opinion, and my opinion doesn't matter for much, but I think there are occasions where maybe the chapter verse references could almost maybe have been a little bit different, and sometimes they may kind of throw us off as far as the train of thought, that's what's being described there. Now, in the end of chapter 6, verse 12, he had just posed this question, which I think connects to and almost is the question that leads us into chapter 7 as the answer. He said at the end of chapter 6, verse 12, and I think there's a continuity then to the thought, for who knows what is good for man in life all the days of his vain life in which he passes like a shadow. 
In other words, Solomon was saying there, sometimes we think that we know what is good for our lives, what is best in a situation, but maybe what we think is good for our life really may not be that good. It may be that we think, hey, it would be really good for me if I was more wealthy. But God may say, in all honesty, for you, that really wouldn't be good for you because it would actually bring a detrimental effect in your life or it may cause you to be distracted or maybe prosperity or materialism as it can happen in all of our lives. And as we've seen it happen in many people's lives, sometimes that sends them down an unhealthy track in their life. Or it may be good if I could be in this relationship with this person. And God may say, you think it would be good for you to be in that relationship with that person, but it may actually not be a good thing for you. It may be better or best for you to be in this situation or with a different person. And again, we can continue to fill in the blank there, but it's just a reminder that sometimes we don't know what's best for our lives. We don't always know what is good. We serve a good God who is loving and all-wise and caring and in all of his ways is good, and we need to trust more often than not his judgment and recognize that his wisdom is perfect, he never makes mistakes, and that thankfully, even as Christians, we have a promise, Romans 8.28, that God works all things for our good ultimately to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that's only a promise really for the child of God. But how wonderful that we have a good God who can even allow and permit things that come into our lives that sometimes we may think circumstantially or experientially, man, this is really bad, or this is no good, or I, I don't like this, or I don't prefer this. And that's a normal human response, but the reality is we don't always know what's good for ourselves, but God does. And thankfully, we can trust him with that, and sometimes that's an act of faith to be able to kind of realize that God's ways are higher than our ways, and that we need to reconcile that reality sometimes to trust that God knows what he's doing, his sovereignty is something that is being operated not from a control issue, but from a great wisdom on his behalf that he is orchestrating events and allowing situations to be permitted and unfolding in life as he's connecting all the dots and he's working out his purposes in all of our lives for the good and ultimately bringing things that are beneficial, maybe in different ways than we would see them to be beneficial. So he asked that question, who really knows as a human being with a finite mind, what really is good all the days of his life under the sun? Because God ultimately is always preparing us for deeper relationship with him and preparing us for eternity. That's his goal in all things, not just our human comfort or our temporal pleasures and so forth. And now as he comes into chapter seven, he starts to use this idea of this is better than this. And it's almost as if he's saying, and some of these things we may not in our rational thinking want to agree with, but God says, no, trust me, this is better. It, this is a better thing than the other thing. And he kind of starts to give some of these contrasts. I think it's over some 10 times we'll see that phrase here. It's better to have this. It's better for that to unfold. And again, sometimes that may challenge our human reasoning, but again, we don't live by answers. We live by faith. We don't live according to human reason. The Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. So Solomon begins here in chapter 7 saying to us, first of all, a good name is better than precious ointment. Now, 
understand in that day when they wore precious ointments, what we would think of as like perfumes, you know, myrrh, things of that nature, when they would use ointments to anoint their bodies and perfume their bodies, very different than what we do in this day and age where you can go to the store and spend, I don't even know, I haven't bought some in a long time. Um, thankfully, my wife's not a real big perfume where she smells so beautiful all the time without it. That's why. She's in the nursery, so she can hear me saying that. Hopefully, that made her smile. Um, but you know, we buy perfumes just to right, kind of attract people to us or make ourselves smell you know, beautiful or whatever. In that day, when they anointed themselves with a precious ointment, understand, those ointments and perfumes, first of all, were very rare, so they were very expensive. They were, they were worth a lot. They were very valuable. Remember when the spikenard was used to anoint Jesus, when Mary broke that spikenard and she anointed the Lord with that? how she did that as an expression of great devotion to the Lord. Typically, that little vial of spikenard, that fragrant oil, was typically, because it was so expensive and so rare, was usually saved either for the, the day of a woman's wedding ceremony or it would be used, the other only other occasion, is if someone in her life passed who was very precious to her and she wanted to honor them by anointing their body. And again, even when they were anointing the dead, it was predominantly done, yes, as an act of kindness, but it really was done also to kind of diminish the stench of the decaying body, which happened very quickly in a Mideastern climate. That's why they bury their dead the exact same day, typically, that they pass, for that very logical and practical reason. But again, remember, when she used that, you remember that was when Judas spoke up and then all the disciples chimed in, what a waste. That precious spike nard, that could have been sold for a year's worth of wages, and we could have done a bunch of outreaches to take care and feed a bunch of poor people. But again, remember, Jesus commended her. She's done this to anoint me for the day of my burial, and, and he stuck up for her, and he appreciated. He said, the poor you're going to have with you always, but what she did was an act of expression of love. So again, very valuable, worth a whole lot, very expensive, but other thing to recognize is typically ointments, precious ointments like that perfumes were used to cover and restrain the reality of severe human body odor because they did not bathe very often. Bathing was a little bit more of a rare thing. So because of that, they didn't bathe as often. Usually the ointments and perfumes were used basically to kind of subdue and hide your severe odor so that you weren't as offensive. So it was an act of kindness <laughs> to people that you sat next to in synagogue. It was an act of kindness to basically cover your bodily odor. Now, with those understandings in mind of how ointments in their mind from a Mideastern perspective, it was something very valuable that had great worth and it was something used to cover or restrain the reality of the strong, severe odor which was true about themselves underneath, he says here, a good name, now the idea there, a good name, speaks of a sincerely good and respectable reputation. That's what he's talking about. To have a good, honorable name among people that when they hear your name, they hear about you, what comes to their mind is that's a good man or that's a good woman. That's somebody that deserves respect. To have a good reputation, we might say, due to a genuinely good character the Bible is saying that a good name is better than precious ointment. The idea is God saying a good, respectable reputation has even more value than these very costly ointments. 
He's just speaking about the great value and the wonderful benefit, the great worth that a good reputation is. You know, a lot of times today, we want to diminish the importance of maintaining a good reputation. People almost, I don't care what people think about me. You should, to a degree. I understand the reality of you're not looking for acceptance from people all the time because that's a whole other thing in an unbalanced way where you're always craving, you have to have everybody's acceptance and everybody's validation. And then like a chameleon, you kind of always, you know, do you change uh, to your, to you know, kind of match your environment. So when you're with this group of people, you act one way. And then with that group of people, you act, I mean, that's an unhealthy thing. But to kind of, in a sense, act like we don't care that it's important to maintain a good, respectable reputation, that, that's really rather foolish because your reputation becomes the platform for you and I to be have an opportunity to speak into people's lives with credibility, to be able to share spiritual things with people. If you have a horrible Christian testimony because you don't care about your name and representing Christ as a Christian, you're going to really struggle to witness to people. If your reputation as a believer, oh, you profess to be a believer, but then if you don't live out things and you tarnish your reputation, it's going to be really tough for people to receive from you spiritually. So we should appreciate and recognize to have a good name is a valuable thing, and being respected and known for being truly solid and a good person and character, that has great, great worth, and it is a valuable asset, God's saying. Don't diminish the value of it. Your name matters, and your reputation, establishing it and maintaining it is a very, very valuable and an effective tool in the journey of life. Now, he says a good name is better than precious ointment, and then he adds, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. Now, when you're following contextually what Solomon's talking about there, that the day of death is better than the day of one's birth, I don't think he's just generally saying the idea that you know, it's better to die than it is to live. As much as what he's conveying there, the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth in the sense, reason being, that it's the way that you and I finish our life or the way that we end our life at death that is way more valuable than important than how you start life at birth. Because for all of us, to some degree, we may all get different starts in life. The situation you're born into, the status you're born into, you know, what the dynamics are, we don't have much control over that, right? What family you're born into, what were the circumstances of you know, how you came into this world, what your start was like where you were raised, what your upbringing was, your financial status, opportunities, advantages, privileges, lack of privileges, all these things we talk about, right? And we put all the emphasis on it's all about the start and it's all about the environment. And God says it's not about the start and it's not about the environment. It's about a person's choices and their opportunity to realize it's about how I finish. It's about how I end because that's what matters at the end of the day. He says, the day of one's death, their departure, the end of their life, is much better and more valuable than their worth, than their birth, because your end, that's what counts the most. What the people remember. They remember how we finished life. And some of us, just like with running a race, maybe we don't have the best of starts. Or maybe halfway through the race, we, you know, deviate off course or we give up and but the bottom line is is the wonderful thing is life's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And what matters most is how you finish the race, how you end the race. 
I mean, think of the thief on the cross. Does this not apply to him very well? (laughs) He didn't do very well his whole life long. Right before he departed, in a sense, on his deathbed, he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. His end, his death, was way better than his birth and better than his entire life because in the last moment, he finished well. He turned to Christ in humility and he embraced Jesus. And look, what a wonderful thing to to know that. that. That should be our goal from our breathing in this present moment to wherever our departure is, which we will all reach that point, is to realize the most important thing I should be paying attention to is finishing well is numbering our days that we might have a heart of wisdom like Psalm 90 says and realizing that's the better thing. How did you end life? How did you die? Did you die as a godly man? Did you die as a godly woman? Did you die as someone who was you know, faithful and doing things well, even if it's in the latter stage of your life? Don't focus on the start. Focus on the finish. That's the thing that's better and of way more value, just like that precious ointment. He then goes on to say, verse 2, and better, there's our term again, better, to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, meaning the house of mourning, what we might call a, a funeral home, you know, the place where people gather when one has passed. Better is that, he says, because that's the end of all men. That's just the reality of where we're all headed, each one of us. And the living will then take it to heart. So the idea here in verse 2 is in the larger picture of life to be able to learn important realities which help us to then live well, he basically says there, it's better to attend a funeral than it is to attend a party. That's what he's saying to us here. Better to go to the house of mourning. It is better, more valuable, and beneficial to actually participate and attend a funeral than to go to the house of feasting to get to be involved in a party. A party's much more fun, right? We understand that. But the party where all the fun happens isn't where good, productive, valuable things happen in our lives, in our characters, in our perspectives. Because look what he says here. He says that when someone goes to the house of mourning, when they attend a funeral, something of that nature, he says, that's the end of all men. And, and when one is in that situation, he says, the living will take it to heart. The idea is that in those moments, in the funeral experience, that's when we as human beings obtain healthy perspective for our life on realities, and we think about, once again, what really matters, right? Because it's in those moments, whether it's our own loved one or whether it's we're there to support someone who's lost... It's in those moments, and I often say this whenever I officiate you know, funerals and memorial services, I tend to always try and bring up this reality that you know, in that moment, that's when all these questions buried deep down inside of us, they all come rising back up to the surface again. Because in that moment, everybody's pushed the pause button on their life. They're not working that day. They're not doing the things they would normally do. Everybody's life stopped and gone on pause, and we're all sitting there grieving and contemplating a reality that this is the end of all men. And we start realizing one day I'm going to be the one who people are attending my funeral. One day my life is going to come to an end. And it causes us, as he describes here, it causes the living to take it to heart, to stop 
And we often reflect in those times and we think about realities of human existence and we take inventory and we evaluate things. And sometimes that's when we wake up to what really matters again, if we've been starting to doze off and forget what really matters and what really doesn't matter. And so he says, these become some of the most educational times that really do beneficial things, hard things, but the reality is a lot of times the hard things are the good things, right? They're the things that render more valuable. We use terms like no pain, no gain, right, for exercise. The same is it not often true for like character and learning lessons. You know, having a good time is wonderful, but there's really not much beneficial, constructive things that come out of that to help us grow and mature as human beings and develop, but it's the hard things that we go through, the loss of loved ones, the attendance at funerals that kind of cause us to, you know, kind of see things in a whole different light in a healthy way. And, you know, I'll tell you, I can tell you pastorally, as strange as this sounds, and I've been saying, I've been doing such for 25 years, weddings and funerals, I, I would gladly do a memorial service or funeral service before any wedding. Because at weddings, people are psycho. They, they are. They, I mean, just everybody's psychotic. And the whole time, you know, you're trying to deal with that and keep the bride and the groom happy. And then oh, I got all the opinions. Just everybody's crazy, right? So it's supposed to be one of the happiest times in the world, but everybody's just crazy. And they get, but at a memorial service or funeral service, everybody's humbled. Everybody's broken, everybody's attentive, everybody's thinking about the same thing, and the important realities of life are coming to bear on everybody's heart, and it becomes such a wonderful platform, not only for us all to think, but again, from a ministerial perspective, it becomes a great occasion to be able to just speak help and truth and shed light into people's souls, and many times people who wouldn't normally be sitting in a sanctuary like you are this evening, hearing the word of God, but they're there because circumstances have kind of caused them to be there, and now they're receptive, and they're listening, and they're thinking about those things, and you can answer questions that people are asking in valuable ways as they're taking things to heart that they're kind of dealing with and working through. Verse 3, look what he goes on to say, kind of in the same vein, sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better, exactly what we're describing. The heart of the wise is in the house of the morning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth and parting. So notice, he says, those in the house of mourning, those who have been subjected to more difficulties, hardships, pain, he says, one of the byproducts of that is hardship also makes people very wise. It causes people to become very wise and very perceptive, where if someone is just living life like a party and trying to go from laughter to laughter and party to party, they're not really facing the realities of life. And so they're living a very foolish, unrealistic way. They're not recognizing, look, that's not reality, man. He's going to say in a few more verses from now, like, part of life is adversity. And you're living a very immature, naive, foolish perspective. You think life's just one big party. That's not reality. And it's when we go through the hardships and the adversities that many times some of the greatest life lessons are learned. That's why he says there in verse 3, I mean, so beautifully, sorrow is better than laughter. Again, it's, it's not more enjoyable. I'd much rather laugh, and you would as well, than experience sorrow. 
and grief and pain and sorrow comes in many forms. Certainly the you know, loss of a loved one, but there are other ways that people sorrow as well. You know, great failures in their lives, disappointments, hardships, painful things that have been done to them. There are many different things that cause us sorrow and sadness, but he says sorrow ends up being better than just having a good laugh because he says it's by that sadness that we go through that the heart is made better. And what's the, the issue in all of our lives? The heart of the matter is always the matter of what? The heart, right? The problem is our human hearts. And, and he says, by the hardships, the pains, the difficulties, he says pain can be a productive thing because the inward life progresses and we become a better person. We, we, we develop character and we have a better perspective on life and we learn things to develop into becoming a much better person through the hardships and the pains and sorrows. Verse five, he says again, and it is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. So is there much more, God says here, much more value in receiving, we might say, constructive criticism in being able to at times receive, though it may be hard for our pride, to receive being confronted by a wiser person who rebukes us, who comes alongside us, you know, puts their arm around us. Look, there's there's a better way to handle that than how you just did. Or that they speak into our life and, and kind of maybe call us out or challenge us on something, just trying to offer wisdom to help us, to help us mature, to grow. And he says, better is the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. The idea is just listening to a foolish person, the song of fools, we might say, listening to someone who's foolish that just sings our praises all the time. And all they want to do is just sing our praises and keep things light, and they never want to address our errors. And God is saying, look, that, that's really not the most productive relationship. Somebody who just always wants to sing your praises and be nice and never says anything to challenge you or speak into your life, he says, that's really not the most productive form of relationship. Better to hear the challenge, the rebuke of someone wise than just to listen to someone praising us and singing our praises. Verse 6, he kind of goes on to illustrate it. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of a fool. This is also vanity. So he kind of uses a, a play on words here when he talks about kind of the person who's just singing our praises. They never want to challenge us on error or speak any wisdom into our life to help us relationally. He says they're, they're basically people like that. They're like crackling thorns under a pot. Now, the shallow praise of fools is he's saying is a lot like taking thorns and using it to, you know, be your fire underneath your pot. Now, if you take a thorn bush and you use that for your fuel for your fire, it's going to make kind of a nice crackling sound. So it sounds good and it draws some attention and you know, it, it tends to kind of, you know, sound nice, but he says it really doesn't produce much heat, right? I mean, thorns aren't really the best fuel for, for fire. So the idea is the crackling thorns when you're trying to cook under a pot is, well, it sounds pretty and it sounds nice and it draws attention, but it really doesn't serve a very constructive purpose. And he's kind of pointing this out in regards to relationships that if you have a relationship with someone 
and all they ever do is want to keep things light and say soft things and, and laugh together and joke together and everything is just you know joking around and making light of everything and having fun and saying happy things, but they never love you enough to say, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. <laughs> and they never at the same time are willing to speak into your life and say hard and honest things. Then he says, that's kind of like those crackling thorns under the pot. Uh, you know, it may sound good and make you feel good, but it's really not very productive to, to help you in any beneficial way. Verse 7, he says, Surely the oppression destroys a wise man's reason, and a bribe debases the heart. So here he speaks of the danger of kind of getting a convoluted perspective. Oppression speaks of taking advantage of someone's vulnerabilities, right? That's what oppression is, manipulating and taking advantage of someone's vulnerabilities. And a bribe is basically the same type of thing, just in a different way. A bribe is utilizing something to kind of bait somebody to get what you want out of them in whatever the form of bribery may be. So he says taking advantage of somebody's vulnerabilities or using something to bribe and manipulate someone just to get your way, he says that tends to cloud a person's reasoning. He says it, it destroys a wise man's reason and it debases his, start, his heart. When we start to do that kind of stuff, we start polluting our own reasoning and we don't see clearly. Because what we're basically doing is we're just learning how to just manipulate somebody to just get our, our, our desire or our wish in the end. And he says that really can start to cloud the judgment in a relationship. So be very careful of that. If you find yourself doing that to someone, he says, you're going to pollute your heart and you're going to destroy a wise man's reason. And I think that works on the other side of that, that if you're letting someone manipulate you or bribe you to get their way, your own reasoning is going to start to get very clouded because that's not a healthy relationship. That's an abnormal normal. I don't know how many times I find myself saying that to people in you know, conversations with you know, relational dynamics sometimes again and again because sometimes people's judgment gets so convoluted when they're being manipulated or oppressed and bribed and controlled by people in weird ways that they don't even see it themselves. And to help them understand, look, that may be your normal in that relationship, but that's an abnormal normal. And the way you're being utilized is, is not healthy and you know, very unproductive in regards to a proper healthy relationship. Verse 80 then goes on to say, And the end of a thing is better than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Now, very interesting. The end of a thing is better than than its beginning. The idea, it's better to bring something, the language seems to indicate, it's better to bring something to an end, that is to carry it out to its completion, to finish it, we might say, to, to see it through to the end, than just always beginning things and just always starting things, but never sticking it out to see what the end result is in all the things that we start. I mean, we all know this struggle in life, starting things, but never seeing them through, beginning things, but never carrying them out to the end. I mean, the world is strewn with all types of projects that have begun, but then never got carried out to completion, never were followed through to the end result. It is easy to begin things with great enthusiasm, right, and passion and energy at the start of things in the early stages. 
Everybody's super excited and enthusiastic and passionate when their marriage first begins. And then right away, we start using phrases like, well, the honeymoon's over. Well, that's your choice. I've been trying for 28 plus years to keep my honeymoon going. Why does it have to be over? And it's so easy, though, we begin things with passion and enthusiasm, and it's easy to get things started. The hard part we know is that many either can't or won't employ the discipline and resolve of staying power to see things through to the end. And God is saying here to us, look, the end of a thing, getting it to the end, bringing it to its end, carrying it out to completion, that is much better than its beginning. We should not be so excited about what we've begun or what we're beginning what we should be doing is focusing more on realizing things are always much better when they're brought out to an end. When we stick with something and we carry it out to the end, because when we carry it to the end, that's when the results come. That's when the fruit comes something. When we stay with something and we carry it out to completion, uh, if we don't carry things out to the end, we miss out on things getting better. Because God says the end is going to be better than the beginning. And so when we don't carry it out to an end, in a sense, we're robbing the opportunity of reaping the benefits, the fruit, and the reward. And how many times have we seen that if we did carry something out to the end, the end result ended up being much better on the back end if we carried it through and we followed through and stuck with something. And look, for the believer, that statement is absolutely true for all of our lives. The end of a thing is better than the beginning. The end of our life with Christ is way better than the beginning because when we depart from this life and we graduate from here into the eternal dimension, we thought the beginning of our relationship with Jesus was great. You remember how excited you were when you first got saved and knew your sins were forgiven and now you've met Christ and all of a sudden you just like the, the epiphany of like, whoa, like I'm seeing this. And all of a sudden, you know, we're all excited about the Lord and, our, and that's wonderful. But the amazing thing is he says... You think the beginning is good. Wait till you see the end. <laughs> Wait till you see Jesus face to face. And you're able to depart from this earth. And what does the Bible say? Paul says, to depart from this life and be with Christ is far what? Better. Far better. Way better to actually be in the presence of the Lord. And for the child of God, that will always hold true. Now, sadly, you can't take that for completely concrete in every way because for the unbeliever, the end of a thing is not going to be better than their beginning. For them, it's going to be worse, unfortunately. But in a general sense, this is the idea. Better to end things and finish things than just begin things. And he kind of says in relationship, the patient in spirit, verse 8, is better than the proud in spirit. So being patient to persevere once we begin something, looking for long-term change, long-term results, long-term reward, waiting patiently for the fruit like a farmer does. You don't sow the seed today and get a harvest tomorrow. But the hard part is that's why we often begin things and then we derail and we don't see things through. Is because we begin something, but then we're not willing to show patience and perseverance and spirit. And that is an important response when you go through the mundane keeping at it, sticking with it day by day, and you're thinking, I'm not seeing no results. I'm doing the right thing. Where's the fruit? And then he says, what can tend to happen is the proud in spirit is we then react in arrogance and, well, this isn't fair. Nothing's changed yet. And, and then we kind of get this 
arrogant entitlement mentality because we don't see instant changes or instant results. Or I've worked at this job three weeks and they haven't given me a raise yet. Welcome to life. And, and so often in our arrogancy, you know, we, we so quickly, we get so impatient because we don't see immediate change or immediate results. And we do this spiritually as the Lord's people too. And he says, it, it's a wrong reaction when we are impatient and we're proud in spirit and we just give up and we don't carry things through to the end. And then we rob ourselves of the good result on the back end when what we really need to do is be patient in spirit and keep pursuing and keep persevering. And that really is what brings us to that end of a thing being better than the beginning. Verse 9, he says, in connection to that, do not hasten in your spirit to be angry because that's what often happens. We, we quickly become impatient and then we quickly become frustrated. We hasten to become angry for anger rests in the bosom of fools. You know, it's often been said before that you can take a good measure of a man or even where you're at by looking at what it takes to throw you into an angry fit. And, and what a great measurement sometimes of where we're at. You know, what does it take to get us to where our bosom, our inner man, our heart is? We are fired up with anger. I mean, if, if it's small things, then in some ways that's a bad indication that we're struggling with a foolish tendency in our hearts. He says, anger rests in the bosom of fools. Be careful to be quick and hastening into anger just because, and often let's be candid, we, we can tend to get angry just because things aren't going our way. They're not going the way we want them to, and then we, we kind of quickly get angry again because things aren't going the way we expected or the way that we wanted, and then we just kind of foolishly start to get frustrated too quickly and too easily, and then we start to behave in an unhealthy way. He says, verse 10, and do not say, why were the former days better than these? Now, boy, is that applicable? I know no one has ever said that before, right? Solomon reconciled that reality in his own life, that he was tended to say that on occasion. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. So he's describing there in verse 10 how we are behaving wisely, or we might say behaving unwisely, when we are we might say romanticizing the past. And don't we all have a tendency to do that? That we call talk about the good the good old days. You know, one man has said before, I think there's often a truth to that, that you know, sometimes this idea of the good old days is kind of a mixture sometimes of a failing memory and a false imagination. And whenever, oh, the good old days, things were so much better back then. Oh, I, things were better before. I remember. And, and, and a lot of times, it's just a really bad memory and a really distorted imagination that gets us thinking off track like that, where all of a sudden, we, we kind of fixate on the good old days. Oh, things were so much better before. And, and what is that? The idea is just, woe is me and woe is my life now. And, and that was when life was good. And, now, and, and what it does is it causes us then to be distracted with multiple emotional things that basically become stumbling blocks. We become distracted with anger and resentment or undue grief where we become paralyzed forever in a situation or discontentment. Oh, the, the prior days, they were so much better. The former days, they were better. Things were better then. 
That was better. The things now, and, and then we struggle with an undue amount of discontentment or constant criticism that the prior times and prior situations of our life were better. And things now, the ideas we're implying is things now, are they're not good now. They're no good anymore. Everything's horrible now and everything's worthless and miserable and I'm missing out and so on and so forth. And that can become, he's saying here, Solomon, a really foolish trap in trying to find meaning in life because it'll really get us way off course. And it'll cause us mentally and emotionally to just kind of derail and to kind of get stuck in kind of this spinning our wheels type of a thing. And even sometimes utilize that mentality as an excuse for not living in the present because we're so paralyzed, hyperfixating on the past about something that we don't live today. And look, the reality is, is we can't be paralyzed by our past, nor can we become hypnotized by our future. We have to just live in the day. That's what we have to do. And to recognize that was then, this is now, God is still with me. And remember, this was what caused the children of Israel, remember, to get way off track in the Old Testament when they were seeking to rebuild the temple in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, you remember? Because the older generation was looking at the new temple they were trying to rebuild, and the younger generation was all excited. This is all, they'd never built a temple before. This is awesome. We're, we're starting the work of the Lord. We're building the house of God. And the older generation going, oh, man, you have no idea. In the days of the Jesus movement, man, now that was smoking. This, how can you be excited about this? And again, they were grieving and fixated on, oh, it was so much better back then that they were robbing themselves of embracing the present hour, the present move of God's spirit, the present day. And in a sense, you can't make progress when you're always looking, what? Backwards. And they derailed for years and years. They delayed doing the work of God because some were so fixated on how great it was in the past that they were angry and disappointed and resentful. They never embraced the present moment with faith and openness, and it became a great stumbling block. And look, we can do that in all of our lives, and you can fill in the blanks of why we would do that on occasion. But he says, you are not inquiring wisely concerning this if you're saying, why were the former days better than these days now? Verse 11, wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. So again, wisdom without uh, wisdom to have no wisdom and to receive an inheritance, that's usually not good. And we've all perhaps seen that before. If somebody receives an inheritance and they're somehow enriched in a way and they don't have wisdom to match with it, that can be very dangerous. He says wisdom is good if you come into an inheritance because wisdom will help you manage well with good stewardship and it's profitable for those who see the sun. For verse 12, for wisdom is a defense, even as money is a defense, but the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. So here he speaks of the, the value and the benefit of wisdom, and even how wisdom, possessing wisdom, just like possessing money, does have some degree of defense in the sense that by having resources at our disposal financially, 
Money can be a defense in the sense that it can protect us and defend us maybe against certain dangers or certain ruins. So money can be used in an instrumental way to protect us and to shield us, right? And he says, but even better than money is wisdom because money can run out, right? <laughs> and money can get lost. That was all of what the past two chapters were about, how quickly money can come. And then with one bad investment or misfortune in business or a misfortune in life, money and riches can disappear overnight. But wisdom is something you can retain and keep using. It has much better value. It's a much better thing to safeguard your life. It can shield you from anything, really, because you can help making good decisions no matter what situation comes. So he's describing the, the value of wisdom and the excellence of having that knowledge to give life to those who have it. Verse 13, he says, Consider the work of God, for who can make straight what he has made Crooked. So the idea there, again, consider the work of God, recognizing God's sovereignty, what God's permitted, what God's allowed to come to pass. And he says, if God has made something crooked, who's able to make it straight? And what he's basically defining there is as humans, we cannot change what God determines and God allows to transpire as events unfold in our lives. God is sovereign. And this isn't a fatalistic mentality of, oh, I have no responsibility, I shouldn't do anything, cast you know, restraint to the wind and just a, an attitude of fatalism. What he's describing here is just the reality that if God has allowed something to unfold and God's determined or permitted something to transpire, it is of no value and benefit for us to strive against it, to fight against it, to think somehow that we can change what God has ultimately allowed to unfold. He says here, even if God's allowed something to become crooked, you're not going to be able to straighten it out if God's allowed it to become crooked. Now, here's the wonderful thing and the benefit of living a life in faith and trusting God and his wisdom and his sovereignty is if God's allowed something to be crooked, I can't straighten it out, but guess who can? God can straighten it out. Lord, I, this is really crooked. This is messed up, Lord. I don't know what to do with this. Now, I can strive in the flesh and try and straighten it out myself where I can say, Lord, you have the power to straighten crooked things out. <laughs> so, Lord, I ask that by your power, you allowed it to become crooked. I ask that you, by your power, would straighten this situation out and bring some resolve. And if he wills to straighten out what he's allowed to be crooked or bent, he's able to do that. But striving in the flesh, folks, to try and fix things, to make them as we wish or we prefer, that's often, if you haven't noticed yet, a really vain effort, and it's really frustrating. And striving in the flesh and scheming often just causes us way more headache and problems. Better to just humbly submit to circumstances, even when it's difficult, not preferable to accept them. God, you're sovereign. I don't understand, and, and, and I isn't what I prefer, but God, you're wise, and I know that you're working in ways beyond my human reasoning. Your ways are higher. And so I'm just asking, Lord, if it be your will, straighten this out. We'll work in this situation. Much better to yield to what God's doing than to resist and to fight against it. It just causes more difficulties for us. Look what he says, verse 14, kind of in connection to that idea. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider, think it through. What does God want us to learn? Surely, look what he says, God has appointed the one as well as the other so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. So notice, 
The Bible teaches that God has brought into our human experience a balance of experiencing both prosperity as well as adversity, that there is a balance of both. We will experience degrees of prosperity and seasons of prosperity, and when we do, we should respond wisely, and that is we should be appreciative of prosperity. We shouldn't feel guilty because God's blessed us. We shouldn't have to, you know, kind of sheepishly, you know, deny the fact. Look, if God's blessed you or prospered you, that's not evil or wrong. <laughs> Don't rob God of his goodness. He's a good father. And in the day of prosperity, he says, be joyful, celebrate, be thankful. God, thank you. Respond correctly. Just be appreciative and joyful and thankful to God. And he says, and in the days of adversity, consider and think through in a proper response Lord, in humility, what do you want me to learn from this? You've allowed this to come to pass. This is a season of adversity. This is a difficult time. And again, it's the balance of prosperity and adversity that helps us to become healthy people. And so in different degrees, God will allow us in different seasons to have a blend and a mixture of both. And again, that's a valuable life lesson. If you're going to find meaning in this life, it's healthy to recognize life includes both. Life is supposed to include prosperity and adversity. We all want to sign up for the prosperity. But it's important to realize part of life is also adversity. It's part of what makes us healthy people, helps us grow and have compassion and character and have a proper perspective in regards to just realities. And again, very important to to see the balance of life in the way that God, he says, God has appointed the one as well as the other. Sometimes he's appointed prosperity and sometimes he appoints adversity for seasons in our lives also. He says, I've seen everything, verse 15, in my days of vanity. There is a just man who perishes in his righteousness and then the wicked man who prolongs his life in wickedness, it's almost as if you sent Solomon saying, sometimes it's not possible to understand or figure out why things are happening the way they're happening. Why does the righteous man perish and die early? Why does the ungodly, wicked man have a long life of health on this earth? He says, I, I can't figure everything out. That just becomes vain, trying to figure everything out in my mind. Verse 16, do not be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? And do not be overly wicked, nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It is good for you to grasp this, to grab hold of this, and not to remove your hand from the other, for he who fears God will escape them all. Now, the idea here in verse 16 and 17, he seems to be implying, is the danger of what we might refer to as striving. And rather than just submitting and, and, and being humble and walking with God, striving to unhealthy extremes rather than balance and moderation. Because you notice he says here, do not be overly righteous nor overly wise lest you destroy yourself. Now, typically somebody being ultra-righteous and ultra-wise, you wouldn't think that's a path towards self-destruction, right? I mean, that almost seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? Hey, if you're too wise and you're too righteous, you're going to really wreck your life, bro. I mean, typically, you'd be saying the opposite, right? If you act like a fool and you live wicked and unrighteously, you're going to destroy your life. So clearly, he's trying to convey something. What he's conveying here, don't be overly righteous. The idea is 
warning against striving to be so right that you start to become a self-righteous individual. And he says, be careful of that. That's a very self-destructive tendency where you strive to always have to be right and to be so spiritual and perfect that you start to be overly righteous because now you're manufacturing your own self-righteousness in your own self-worth and self-righteousness is a stench. And it's, and it's a form of arrogancy and it's very self-destructive. So he says, be careful of striving and becoming self-righteous or becoming overly wise. And again, the same idea. They're striving to be so wise in your own opinion that you know everything about everything and that nobody can ever teach you or tell you because you're super wise. And you know it. And he says, you try and be overly wise, he says, you're going to find out you're a fool real quick. And that can become a very self-destructive pattern, again, where we become kind of overly wise in our own view of things rather than being teachable in spirit. And he says as well there, and don't be overly wicked. Now there the idea is becoming reckless and living just, you know, completely casting off restraint and sin and immorality and being overly foolish and tempting God. Why should you die before your time? And again, the idea there is just living out of control with no restraint and basically kind of cutting short your own life because you bring, in a sense, undue discipline upon yourself by tempting God and living recklessly. Never a good thing to do. He says the wise thing to do, verse 18, just live in fear of God and you'll escape this all. The idea is just live before God in humility, respect God's authority, and if you want to be afraid of anything, don't be afraid of anything other than displeasing God. That's the safe way to live. Live in a way where you honor God and you don't want to displease him. He says, wisdom, verse 19, strengthens the wise more than 10 rulers of the city. Now, 10 rulers of a city would have lots of authority, which means they have lots of power and lots of influence. And here he's saying that one wise man can have way more influence than 10 powerful rulers. Again, he's exalting the value and the strength of wisdom. Wisdom, when one wise man can have more beneficial impact than someone who is going against 10 powerful rulers with great authority. For there is not a just man on earth who does not do good, or excuse me, who does good and does not sin. So verse 20, Solomon kind of brings back this reminder here that one of the things that is true about all of humanity is to remember and keep in mind that all of humanity is broken and it's flawed and, and everyone is inclined to fall and fail into sin repeatedly. Again, the New Testament teaches this continuously, that there's no difference. We all sin, we all for, fall short of the glory of God. And if there was anything that Solomon knew is that one of the wisest things is to realize that there is no just man on earth who does good and does not sin. That it's the fool who doesn't want to acknowledge that they're a failure, that they have guilt in their life, that they've made mistake. The fool says in his heart, no to God, because he doesn't think he needs God. And the Bible says to understand this reality that there is not a just man on the entire earth who does not sin. Everybody sins. That's God's estimation. And if we think something different than that, we're saying God's foolish and I'm smart. And he says that, that's a really bad theology. That's a really bad way of living life. Now, look at verse 21 to 22. Maybe we'll just kind of close off here for sake of time. But 
great life lesson to take with us, maybe even as we head into this next week. Verse 21, also do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you, for many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. So here he speaks of how it is wise to not become overly sensitive and take to heart what is said to us personally or about us in regards to other people, criticizing us, making fun of us, mocking us, insulting us, that in a weak moment when someone maligns you or says something critical about you or talk to someone else about you, he says, don't take to heart everything people say. Just don't become hypersensitive. Don't become someone who's overly thin-skinned in a way where you're overly sensitive to things that are said to you that are negative or critical or hurtful because that's part of human existence. And he says, don't allow yourself to overinflate those things in a way because here's the bottom line. He says, that's going to send you down an unhealthy, unneeded path of mental and emotional turmoil because you're just being too insensitive, you're too, becoming too sensitive. And you're taking everything way too personally in an unhealthy way, and that is not good. It will be harmful mentally and emotionally. And then he gives us the reminder, verse 22, for many times you yourself know in your heart that you have done what? You've cursed others. Oh, I can't believe they said that about me. I can't believe they're talking about me. And God says, Do you remember last week when you were talking about that person? I mean, could you imagine if God just had us like on auto record and then he just started playing out loud, you know, our prior conversation? Because in moments of weakness, we all can tend to be critical, opinionated, negative. We say things about others. And, he, and, and God says, look, just be merciful because you know you've done that before. You've talked about people in ways you probably shouldn't have talked about them. You've said things that you probably shouldn't have said to others. So God says, in a merciful way, show mercy, realizing that you failed in that same way as well, that there's no one righteous, everyone sins, we all fall short. And boy, what really great wisdom that is to realize that we've erred in that department, and so we should be a little bit more merciful and gracious and not be overly so sensitive and take it to heart when somebody said something negative about us. I, I tell you, if people in the body of Christ would take those things, even in the church, to heart, my goodness gracious, how many things would not go from little tiny things to major mountainous obstacles in relationships because people take things to heart way more than what they need to. And it really just becomes a sign of unhealthy immaturity that really is just very naive to think that that's not going to happen because why? we're all flawed. We're all flawed. Let's stand together and let's pray.